0: Hello, listeners. My name is Naor Barzeev. I'm a paediatric infectious diseases physician, a vaccine epidemiologist, a clinical trialist, and an accredited statistician. Uh, Currently, I'm Associate Professor of International Health and Vaccinology at the Bloomberg School of Public Health at Johns Hopkins University and act as Deputy Director of the International Vaccine Access Centre there. It's my uh, duty to ensure that all children in all settings in the world have access to safe and effective vaccines, and that's what I spend my working life and my non-working life to much extent doing. I've been asked here to speak briefly about vaccine safety, and uh, this requires some insight into vaccine development and vaccine trials and regulatory processes. Um, I'd like to start, actually, by saying something about the difference between vaccine trials specifically and the general idea of clinical trials. Clinical trials, which are considered a gold standard uh, in, uh, in applied biomedical sciences, clinical trials are generally performed for conditions where people are ill. They have some disease, let's say, and we're looking at an intervention to improve their outcomes. Safety is obviously important in clinical trials, both for ethical reasons and also because you want the intervention to do good and not to do harm. Uh, but the safety has to be balanced against the individual's risk from the underlying disease itself, which is the reason that they are enrolled in the trial in the first place. Um, and we look at a disease outcome or the progression of disease, and usually that's a known quantity. For example, we know what proportion of children with acute lymphatic leukemia would die, for example, where in, in disease, and we look to see whether that, uh, the rate of, of, um, of that Im- improves with a treat- new treatment and so on additionally the outcomes of individuals in trials like that are usually independent in other words across participants in the study the improvement of one person one participant doesn't affect the improvement uh, of uh, of anyone else and we're looking here at individuals in the clinical trial uh, the general rule of thumb for most clinical trials is that the greater the size of the effect that we're looking for usually the greater is the power to detect that effect so the smaller is the size of the study that's required. Now, how does that differ in vaccine trials? Well, in vaccine trials, this is really important. We are working with people who are healthy. We're giving healthy people an intervention. And that's not only true in trials, that's true for vaccines in general. Vaccines is something that we hope, everybody, every human being, and animals, many animals, uh, there are animal vaccines as well. Uh, But, you know, let's stick to talking about humans, that all human beings get um, vaccines at a vulnerable age at a young age and so safety is really really paramount because you're exposing everybody but the, but both those who may be at greater risk of disease and those who may be at lesser risk of disease those who are, are currently healthy to an intervention uh which is the vaccine and so any risk uh you know is really important and there's a really low threshold for tolerating any adverse event or risk And there's also the question of balancing the individual risk for the vaccine recipient versus the individual benefit that they would gain from that vaccine, uh, balancing that against the public benefit. These are complex issues and issues for which there should be appropriate public debate uh, to get that balance right. Um, Now, the outcomes here in vaccine trials, I mean, are often the incident or new cases uh, occurring uh, of the disease in question in the population. And rates like that can often be variable and they could depend on seasonality, for example. Let's say a good example would be influenza right? or other things that could change the rate of the d- disease in a population over time. Uh, the outcomes are not always independent of the different participants, particularly if um, there's an outbreak or particularly, let's say, if we can achieve through vaccination a level of what's called herd protection, which I'm not going to go into in this, um, in this uh, audio recording we're looking at population level outcomes really and not individual level outcomes and sometimes paradoxically a vaccine which is highly effective and is very impactful can get rid of the disease to such an extent in the population that it's hard to detect cases of that disease and that can have complex effects on the power and the size of the trial that's needed in vaccine trials. Um, So really the uh, You know, the idea that in medicine you first do no harm goes back to the very foundation of medicine, really. Back in Greco-Roman times, uh, 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 the very fundamental rule of medicine, the first rule, is that um, we do no harm and we aim to do as much good as we can. So really you have to – it's not enough just to say I'm a doctor, you can trust me and so on. You really have to put into place systems and mechanisms to protect both study participants, trial participants and, of course, the general public. Vaccines, as I said, are given to everybody, often given early in life. They can have an immediate but also a delayed effect. And there are questions about their real risks and also questions about the perception in the community of risks, even though those may not be um, valid. Uh, I mean, that that the risks may not be true, but if the perception is of risk, that can do harm to vaccine uptake and can itself cause, which itself can lead to lower vaccine uh, community coverage and then outbreaks of disease. So dealing with both risk and with the perception of risk is really important. If the community is, uh, thinks that a vaccine is harmful, even when it's not harmful, then that can lead to distrust of the vaccination system as a whole, which is dangerous. So you want to manage all of that. Now, obviously, there are real risks from vaccines. There are rare outcomes that are serious, uh, but as I said, they're rare, and there are common outcomes that are relatively mild. And then, of course, there are the real risks of the disease itself. Uh, what would happen from the disease had there be? Would there be no? If, if there were no vaccination. In general, people are not so great at thinking through how to evaluate those balance of risks, and um, but we also have to think about the rights and freedoms of uh, people participating in trials uh, and, of course, the general public. And trust in this issue really is paramount. But as I say, trust is really about having the right systems in place uh, and not having everything dependent on one individual or one funder or one company and so on. You know, trust is achieved by dividing up responsibilities in such a way that there are many, many gatekeepers that, that um, cross-checks and balances on one another. Okay, so let's quickly go through the phases of vaccine development. There are thousands of individual steps, really, but this is just a broad overview. And well before you get to vaccine trials, you first of all have to recognize that the disease in question is a distinct entity. And that's not always straightforward. For example, there was some question in the you know, early uh, years of modern medicine about the difference between smallpox and chickenpox. That's well defined now, but um, there were questions about that. There are still ongoing controversies about some diseases, uh, whether they're entities themselves and to what degree and how specifically can they be defined. Once you identify a syndrome or a disease, you then have to identify the causative, what's called etiologic agent, ideally grow that agent in the laboratory, show that it can cause disease uh, if it's an infectious disease Um, and perhaps uh, in some cases establish an animal model for that disease where you can show and do experiments on animals that reflect disease syndrome from that agent But not all diseases have an an animal model. For example, as far as I know, there are no animal models for human papillomavirus or for meningococcus. In the case of HIV, people used to use simian immunodeficiency virus instead of the human immunodeficiency virus. Simian means monkey or ape. But experimentation on chimpanzees is no longer permitted in the United States and, um, and animal models are no longer used in HIV. So once you've identified the agent that causes a disease, you then, if you're going to try to develop a vaccine, you have to either inactivate that agent so it can't cause disease, or in some way modify what's called attenuate the agent in the laboratory. And also to identify what are the surface antigens on that agent uh, that induce the protective response of the human immune response. So when the human immune system meets with uh, uh, infecting organisms, there are uh, surface molecules on those organisms that generate an immune response, an antibody response usually. And those things that generate an antibody response are called antigens. Uh, and there are obviously many arms to the immune system that's way beyond the scope of this discussion, but understanding how it works with all its complexity is important when you're trying to develop vaccines and understanding immune response. Then you have to prepare... a uh, potential vaccine according to very very strict uh, guidelines called good manufacturing and laboratory practice which are highly um, regulated once that's achieved and that can take many years you have to evaluate uh, it for its ability to be protective as i said perhaps initially in animal models or in other types of model systems they're in vitro systems that means in the laboratory and then of course in humans potentially eventually well uh, eventually that's the aim you also have to ideally identify an immunological correlate of the disease, which means some measure of whether the and whether your uh, potential vaccine induces a good immune response that would protect against disease. Ultimately, you want to be able to prove that it does protect against disease and a death, uh, but uh, certainly you would want to at least show that it produces the immune response that should be associated with a reduction in disease. So at least defining that immune correlate is important. And again, not every disease has a defined immunological correlate. And that's a whole discussion as well in itself. So eventually, only after all of those steps, and those steps, as I said, can take many years, then you get to prepare the protocols for your initial studies in humans. And in the United States, there's a step that's required at that point, which is to apply to the uh, FDA, for an investigational new drug approval. And only at that, and again, that's scrutinized and peer-reviewed and all that. And then we start with human trials at that point. Um, And the human trials are classically divided into four phases. Uh, The first phase, which uh, usually is applied to a very small number of people, is really about... Uh, getting the dose right and understanding the impact that the uh, that the product has, the trial product has on immunogenicity—that's producing an immune response—and whether it's safe. And we need to, you know, titrate the dose and and so on. Uh, the phase two is effectively rather similar, but it involves more people, and we look for more durable immunogenicity, again and safety. Uh, right throughout, we look for we try to elicit any, uh, you know, specifically ask about any adverse events that have happened and we collect further information about uh, any adverse events that we didn't expect and perhaps the participants report to us Um, and we also many uh, many of these trials require laboratory testing so that we pick up any potential adverse effects even if the participant isn't aware that they happen this is what's called subclinical but they may be you may be able to find them on laboratory testing Then eventually you get to phase three, which is the classical human clinical trial uh, of a vaccine trial at larger scale. At that point, you look at efficacy against disease endpoints or at immunogenicity and ideally actual efficacy against disease, uh, which means that the vaccine reduces the disease in the way we hope that it it does. And again, uh, very important at that level also is safety. Now, even though at any stage, at any of these phases, if there are any safety signals or safety concerns uh, uh, that are uh, um, shown or that are found, then production and development of that product uh, is stopped uh, in most cases. Uh, and uh, the same thing uh, applies as you go forward, you know, in phase two, in phase three. Uh, as you go from phase one, two and three, the, f- the size of the studies get bigger and you have more participants, and so you have an opportunity to detect more uncommon adverse effects. Adverse effects that are extremely rare, let's say something that might happen one in 200,000 people or one in a million people, those types of things can't be detected in these clinical trials, and they're detected subsequently in what's called phase 4 surveillance. So if a vaccine is safe enough that it is not found to cause any adverse events, um, in the phases one, two, three, and in all of the pre-human trials and, and studies, and if there's no plausible mechanism for it to cause harm, and if there is no evidence of any harm, then we allow the use of that vaccine of, uh, often, if, if it passes all the requirements rigorously, and then surveillance I- is maintained for any rare adverse events. And there are examples where adverse events have led to the withdrawal uh, of vaccines in the past. Um, now the biological license application is also uh, uh, applied for at this time, and it can take years sometimes of toing and froing with the FDA before a uh, product is, eventually goes to market. Um, and it's a big deal to go to market, and uh, obviously at that point it's also an economic decision for the people who invested in that vaccine, often a company. Now not all vaccines are developed entirely by companies; some are developed through academia. Some are developed through the military. Uh, Some are developed through uh, scientists that uh, invest in small startups and then they sell a potential product to a bigger company if it looks like it has potential. Uh, And that's an important part of the way uh, vaccines develop. It takes many, many years to develop vaccines. And of all of the candidates that go through testing, only a really tiny minority actually make it through. So the initial layout of investment is very high. And that really yeah, requires industry funding um, to to um, to make that happen uh, so of course that then raises questions about uh, proprietary and honesty and you know the reasons that people uh, do what they do vaccine manufacturers uh, have a bottom line and shareholders and they have, mu- uh, have to make money, but they go through systems that are not uh, not part, part of that so the cdc doesn 't produce its own Um, to market vaccines and the FDA doesn't produce, doesn't make money out of vaccines and so on, like these are separate and independent, entirely independent bodies. So even though there is a real politic kind of issue that there's money involved, as there is in everything, but there is also a public good that is there in achieving high vaccine coverage if the vaccine is safe and if it's effective. So there needs to be a combination of both industry and public health bodies uh, involved in vaccine development. Uh, So and and then once a vaccine is licensed and it's in use and it's been introduced, then phase four uh, kicks off and that uh, really is post-licensure safety surveillance uh, where where we examine for rare events. And you can only find rare things when you look over a very large scale uh, and over a very large time scale as well. Uh, And then at that point you're also looking at real-world effectiveness, which is a bit different to what you see in a clinical trial, which is called efficacy. And there may be differences which are beyond the scope of this discussion for why a vaccine might be more or less effective in the real world than in a clinical trial. You also want to see how it works in a generalizable population. The populations involved in clinical trials are not always um, as generalisable as, general, as in general population. So the vaccine development process is long and complicated. It can take years. Many, many candidates fail that process. And they often fail at phase one or two or even before it's a huge cost, um, but it's really important that those losses occur because those losses often occur either because the vaccine just doesn't work well enough or because it's not considered safe or there are concerns about safety and so probably the you know the vast majority of um, potential products never make it to market um, okay. Uh, so how how do trials like this compare to real life? Well, once a vaccine is deployed uh, in the population, there are a lot of things which I'm not going to go into now, but um, there are a lot of things that can affect real life effectiveness compared to how things are in in, in trial efficacy. Um, okay, so uh, what, what else should I say? Um, I think that's all I'm going to say about that for now, that basically that... The, just like in governance where you have a distribution or, or a division of power across different uh, you know, aspects of government and the law um, in order to keep everybody honest, the same is really true here with different systems both in terms of the CDC, the FDA, um, other bodies internationally in Europe and, and in other countries um, and of course the, the population of scientists and peers and And with uh, public scrutiny also, really, really important role of the general public in uh, being aware and participating and being concerned and raising concerns about vaccine safety. Um, There are examples of vaccines that were withdrawn uh, because of those uh, safety concerns. Uh, Many of them were highly controversial, uh, argued about whether they should have been withdrawn. The benefits were definitely there. There was some risk. Was that risk-benefit uh, worthwhile, uh, that should it have been withdrawn? These are complex ethical questions and they should be part of open public debate. This is nothing secret or hidden about any of this. It's very straightforward and uh, complex issues, but they're straightforward to, d- to discuss and open, and, and the process needs to be participatory. Okay, so that's it. Um, I hope you gained uh, something out of listening to me, and uh, yeah, and I hope you make uh, the right decisions about the balance of risks and benefits of vaccination. Remember that there are risks of disease that occur when you don't vaccinate. No vaccine is 100% safe. No vaccine is 100% absolutely effective every time. There are risks in everything. Risks in vaccinating are small, sometimes rarely serious. Uh, There are risks of not vaccinating, which are very real and very serious indeed, uh, should we allow infectious disease to return to the days before vaccinology. Okay, thank you for your time. Thanks for listening to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast. If you've enjoyed this, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share this with your friends. For more information, check out our Instagram at joma underscore org. Check out our website, www.joma.org, that's jowm org, or email us at health at joma.org.